With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh, yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey guys, welcome to Happy, Sad, Confused. This week, Paul Verhoeven talks about a stellar and at times controversial career and Naomi Harris on why it sometimes only takes three days to deliver an amazing performance. I'm Josh Horowitz. I do the chit-chatting around here. This over here is Sammy. Hello. What do you do over here, by the way? It's hard to say. Jury's you, still out. No, no. You're you're like the, uh, you get everybody excited. You get me excited for the show. I'm the you, mood setter. You get the, yes. <laughs> the mood setter. What's the mood this week? Uh, we are excited. We're thrilled. Week. It's no, We're deep in November. This is, we're actually filming this in a very crazy time. Well, yes. So we don't know the, the outcome of the election. Should we do two different versions depending on how um, it goes? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe three. Uh, one if either wins and third if there's just like an apocalypse. <laughs> right. I was one of just screams <laughs> and cries. So you guys know more than uh, we do about the fate of our country, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, happier things uh, such as – uh, Fantastic Beasts we both saw. Where to find them. Yes. Um, so we wanted to tease that beyond just this fun little podcast today, um, Sammy and I are working on a couple of fun um, events. Really fun events. Um, we can't really say much, too much about the film, sadly, because it's I know. Embargo. I'm not going – you're so scared. I'm going to just say I just everything. know what you're like. You have a lot to say. Um, and there is going to be a lot to say. Maybe we'll talk about it on that next week's podcast when we're actually allowed to. But talk about the events. Yes. So I, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast, I'm sure, are fans of Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts and the actors in this. And we're doing a couple really cool things. So um, on Thursday night in New York is the – I believe it's the world premiere. I'm pretty sure it's the world premiere of the film. And um, we, we will be doing a, a Facebook Live mm-hmm. on MTV's Facebook page from the red carpet. I'll be chit-chatting with everybody and anybody from uh, Eddie Redmond. All the way to uh, J.K. Rowling. Uh, That's pretty Joe. Great. Joe. Uh-huh. Yeah. When am I going to ask Joe? What should I ask her? Uh, well, we have. To, yeah. I, we I have, can't we tell to, you that. We have to talk yeah. about this because you're the you're the you're the you're, you're the big Potter make such an person. Ass out of yourself. Well, that goes without saying. Uh, then, if that's not enough for you guys, on Friday, uh, Friday afternoon, um, on MTV's Facebook page, um, we have the four main stars of the film: Eddie Redmayne, Catherine Waterston, Dan Fogler, and Allison Sudol. Um, and they are all coming into studio, and I'm going to chat with them for about 30 minutes, yeah. and uh, we'll probably solicit some of your questions uh, via social media. I'll ask a bunch of my own stupid questions and um, hopefully play some games play some games it's gonna be a good time yeah, get out and have a nice weekend yeah so a lot of Fantastic Beast stuff coming for you guys um, I think you all are going to enjoy it I'm really psyched the movie is um, Don't. dot 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 I can't say anything but it's worth it's worth talking about that's all no, I'll say no it's not if you can't it's... I'm saying it's worth talking <laughs> about next okay, subject alright next subject I can't, okay. can't control myself <laughs> God, calm down okay so on to this week's show this week uh, later on in the show we have uh, Naomi Harris as I mentioned Naomi is uh, our second um, star of the film Moonlight which you know that I love I've been talking a lot about this film since I saw it in Toronto um, she plays uh, 
it's it's an intense part. She plays a uh, the mom of the main character who's a crack addict. She's not exactly going to win Mom of the Year awards. She goes through a lot in the course of this film, um, and uh, she also remarkably shot her part in three days. That's crazy. Yeah, we talk about that. Just it was just the nature of the shoot. It's a small film. There were visa issues. Yada yada yada. She actually did it uh, while she was in the middle of promoting. Spectre, you know, she plays Money Penny in the James Bond movies. Mm. So she was do- on the publicity circuit. She snuck away for three days, shot this amazing part in in three days, and uh, and now everybody is in love with it. So we're going to talk all about that with Naomi. So it was worth it. I would say so. Um, but first up, uh, Sammy, you know how much I love to geek out with a filmmaker that I adore. Oh, who does? This is what I live for. Uh, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven, Sammy. Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Okay. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven case came by recently, um, and yeah, his accent is, by the way, amazing. Um, and Did he, you mimic his accent no, throughout the interview? No, We wait for the second podcast interview for oh. me to start to mock my guests to their face. Got it, got it. Um, but he is, of course, as any film fan knows, the director of RoboCop and Starship Troopers and Total Recall and Basic Instinct and, yes, Showgirls. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, made some of my favorite movies of my childhood, and we talk about a bunch of them, and we talk a lot about um, his return kind of to filmmaking. I mean, he, he basically left Hollywood 10 or 15 – about 10 years ago after Hollow Man, not a great movie uh, by even by his own uh, uh, accounts um, and started to make films in Europe. And now he's made this film. Uh, it's a French production, a French star, Isabelle Huppert, and it's a film called Elle. And it uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this past year and it got rapturous uh, applause and standing O's and all that. And it's uh, it's become a very well-reviewed film despite it being actually a, a pretty controversial subject. And that's not something surprising for Paul. He's a filmmaker d- that does not shy away from being controversial. And he talks in the interview about not liking to censor himself. Uh, I won't say too much about the content of the film because it's the kind of film I think you got you want to discover as you see it. But essentially it starts with uh, the main character, uh, Isabel Huppert, plays a, a, a woman who is sexually assaulted literally in the first scene. And her reaction to that assault and her reaction to her, her – to her attacker and how that relationship, if you can call it that, develops is very unusual and not what you would expect. Um, it's a drama. It's a thriller. It's kind of a black comedy at times. Um, I, highly, I highly recommend it. It opens in limited release, I believe, this Friday, and I'm sure it's going to spread around and it is getting a lot of critical attention and it's it's definitely one you're going to talk a lot about after seeing. So. That's my preamble for L. Check it out this Friday. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Paul Verhoeven, who is truly a, a living legend in my book. He's one of the greats, and um, he. This is a, a fun interview because he's. Uh, I, th- I don't think he gives a fuck, Sammy. I, I think, love that. I think he'll just say anything. Cl- like a Nick Nolte. Yeah, kind of. We're, we're on. We're seven on the <laughs> Nolte scale. <laughs> um, enjoy this conversation with the great Paul Verhoeven. So there's no formal introduction, uh, Mr. Verhoeven, but um, I'll introduce you by way of saying um, I vividly remember uh, I was 11 years old and I was taken to a film uh, that uh, seemed like a very silly, fun concept at the time that what, what possible damage could it do to my psyche? It was a film called RoboCop and I've been scarred in the best way ever since. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here because it, it's the, that film and many of your others stand the test of time and um, – I'm just thrilled that you're back with this great piece of work called L. Congratulations, sir. Thank you. So um, I think when people see this film uh, that know your work, I think they're going to be very hardened to see that um, you 
have not lost a step at all. This is as um, you know, all the buzzwords that always are associated with your name um, in terms of entertaining and provocative, um, and obviously great craftsmanship and great performances. Uh, give me a sense of this must be a satisfying time to see the reception to this film because you've got, you've gotten all sorts of receptions throughout your career. Yeah, this is a really nice one till now. But <laughs> <laughs> we have done uh, France and Belgium, Holland and Canada, uh, Spain. Um, but uh, of course, it could be a bit different in the United States. I have to find out. But uh, in general, everything has been extremely positive. Uh, certainly, if you compare it to the reactions of, uh, for example, uh, or uh, Starship Troopers sure. or Hollow Man, or especially Showgirls, <laughs> uh, this was uh, a really pleasant surprise. Yes, yeah, so far. Well, and are you somewhat surprised this the film debuted in Cannes and um, you know the, the film the subject matter is uh, it definitely is provocative it's going to stimulate conversation as it should um, it, it, Isabel Huppert uh, stars as a as a really unique character a character I've never seen on screen before she is a, a victim of sexual violence at the outset and her reaction to that is anything but typical that we see in a film um, were you surprised? By the initial reaction in Cannes, were you almost stealing yourself for more uh, backlash? I, I was. I think we were all um, aware that it could be provocative. Um, I, personally, not for me. Of course, it was not provocative. I, in fact, uh, the the novel, the, uh, the film is based on a French novel called O, oh, like O, oh. um, and. Um, that had already been uh, controversial in, in the French press. Sure. But uh, there were, uh, let's say, uh, very uh, positive reviews of that book and some negatives. So we thought that it would be a bit similar with the movie. But um, what happened in Cannes was uh, really uh, one-sided, I would say. It was only positive. Yeah. And um, I, I, if you would have been there, it was extremely interesting that at the end of the first screening of L, which was at the end of the festival, um, the, 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 the theater, a couple of thousand people, uh, exploded in an applause that took about uh, 15, 16 minutes. Right. I mean, all standing up and we were in the middle of the theater. You would not go to stage. You would uh, stand up in your seats, but just in, uh, in the center of the, uh, of, the, of the theater. And all the people in an enormous circle would be around you all and all <laughs> applauding. But that's not three minutes, but... 15, 16, 17 minutes that it went on. And I think I've never seen anything like that at all. I mean, it was probably the, the biggest explosion, the most unexpected um, a reaction to a movie that I've ever witnessed, you know. I, we we were not even, we, we, we didn't know what, what to look anymore, you know, because it <laughs> went on and on. And you guys can then sit, we were embracing you, <laughs> each other and kissing each other and waving around and then, uh, and then, but it went on another t a couple of minutes. So then we started again embracing <laughs> each other just to fill in the time because you you don't know what it, what you have to do for 15 minutes standing, basically. And, 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 and with 2,000 meters, people around you also standing. So, um, yeah, that was uh, extraordinary, I would say. I mean, given the, the track record and the ups and downs in anybody's career, are you more appreciative of that than ever? 
No, I, I no. Bec- uh, this was this was something that was be- beyond anything that, that I had ever witnessed. Right. You know. So it oh, it took me by and everybody else, but it took me certainly by surprise. Yeah. So it's not that you basically get accustomed to these things. Something like that had never happened. It was more that you were, uh, yeah, t- completely, let's say taken aback by something that continued this way so long and and that you suddenly thought oh we made a very interesting movie and people really <laughs> like this and and so the idea of controversy disappeared sure do, do, do you take it as a badge of honor though that throughout your career you are like you can't be introduced without the words provocative or controversial being right, assigned to right. you do you take that as a compliment or do you find that odd that people still assign that to you well, it has been. Uh, there has been uh, uh, clearly some of these movies have been, uh, let's say, controversial, isn't it? It's. Not, I I don't think that you really, uh, let's say, start a movie by thinking I'm going to be provocative. Right. I, I I never felt that. What I do, and, and that's per- perhaps unique, uh, and that might be where the, this idea of provocation comes from. I refuse to censor myself. My thinking, I, I see it this way, and I think, uh, okay, that's how I see the scene. That's what my interpretation is. This is the political context that I would put underneath it or whatever. And 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 then you realize, and in, 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 in later you realize that you were provocative. Yeah. But it's... it's I, I, and by now I know that my fact, that the fact that I don't censor myself, got got me in, in serious problems. Well, it's, it's interesting when I started to think back to your career and 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 the recent films in the wake of you know leaving Hollywood after Hollow Man. Um, it it, all, it almost seems to me like you haven't necessarily changed. It's the world that we live in. It's the culture that has changed. Your you know Hollywood films back in the day. We're provocative. We're pushing people's buttons. We're willing to take risks. And in the fifties, perhaps in sixties. Well, but I'm, but even like, you know, in the eighties, when you were eighties and nineties, in your kind of heyday of Hollywood stuff, that you were still able to make films like yes, that. And yeah. those those simply don't exist. No, made by gone. studios any anymore. Yeah, no, that, because it, it would uh, certainly most of of these movies, all of these movies were R rated. Right. All the American movies I made were R rated, or Showgirls was even and. 17. So, and the studios have decided that our rating is not good for the for money wise. Right. So basically, if you see now uh, an R rated movie, is rare. I mean, it's all PG or PG 13. And so, by by feeding in, into the in, into the idea that everybody has to be able to see the movie without being offended or or pissed off or angry or whatever. I mean, has seduced the studios to um, to uh, avoid anything that is a little bit um, uh, what you would call provocative. Sure. They don't want anything. People should like the movie. Uh, if they're two babies or 80, it should all be fine for everybody. Right. And I think that has, has now dominated American cinema for the last nearly 10, 15 years. Yeah, that basically... Um, 
And I think it, it, it makes uh, American cinema poorer, if, uh, idea-wise. You well, know? The, there's a sameness to the blockbusters, yeah, too, sure. to the studios. At a certain that, moment, I'm, I'm still thinking every year, well, now they have seen enough of, of Marvel comics. They have seen enough sequels. But, okay, they continue. This is the next, uh, the next remake and the next, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's so uh, even uh, it's so interesting to see a remake of, of Ben-Hur that was rec- right. recently in it. And to to, to say, okay, yes, uh, some things you can do better right? because the, the, you have all these digital possibilities. But if you're done, they think this is really enough because the special effects and, and all the action is great, but the characters don't matter and, and, and fill it in with actors that basically are not Charlton Heston or Stephen Boyd. Right. <laughs> then, <laughs> then I think... Then you diminish the possibilities of movie making. Well, you know? there's not a reason for them to exist other than to no. capitalize yeah, on m- an existing money. property. It, it made money. Let's do it again. Uh, and Let's in this case, they hope. were punished. Yeah, they were punished by that uh, for being too superficial. And not, I'm not saying that you cannot make another Ben Hur. You can. Right. And and the, the latter part of Ben Hur, the latter part when it's all about Jesus, is not that good. You know, <laughs> the film breaks off. In fact, in all honesty, and I'm a big fan. Fan of of the movie, I think it's great filmmaking, especially these uh, uh, horse races, the wagon uh, races. But basically, when um, uh, what's the name, uh, Stephen Boyd character yeah. uh, Masala, I think he's called, uh, dies, the movie, the 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 the, the, the movie is all over. Right. Then there is a kind of a, let's say um, somewhat vague situation where you see a little bit of Jesus and whatever, <laughs> but and and you get some miracle stuff at the end. But it's really not good, you know. So and you've talked about this, but I, I mean, it, it has to be said that like you know those films that I referenced earlier, they, all of your films have been either remade or sequelized by now all the big Hollywood successes, and none of them have succeeded. In these other iterations, um, have the, have the filmmakers ever reached out to you? Have you talked to them when they were getting involved, and have you warned them of these kind of pitfalls that they're going to fall into, or do you kind of like have a hands off attitude when people remake um, your stuff? Uh, uh, I don't know what I would have done if they would have approached me, but they never approached me in any way. Mm-hmm. Nobody, no studio, no director, no producer <laughs> ever asked me. Can we just uh, talk a little bit about what the does movie? Verhoeven know? He does. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. I was looking about also in many of these movies they have good scriptwriters, of course, but um, they elimin- eliminated everything that made these movies possible, I think, by using a certain irony, a certain amount of humor, not taking the, 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 the ideas of the narrative completely seriously because most narratives, if it's, uh, uh, all these science fiction narratives are, of course, always a little bit silly. Isn't it? So to, uh, to accept the fact that it is a certain kind of comic book, certainly uh, Robocop is. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I think you have to add a certain distance, you know, a certain lightness. Other, because if you do it really completely seriously, as they have been doing, then you lose, you're not... The story is not convincing enough, you know. Then yeah. you basically don't have the story. The narrative is is then too simplistic and too direct, to um, to be fascinating for two hours. So, so I think um, uh, I, I think if you have a certain distance and, and bring in a certain amount of satire or irony to it, then you can 
then basically it that enlightens the narrative and you accept it better. Is is anyone approaching that uh, or able to work within the studio system these days that that is working with these kind of large budgets that's giving it an extra layer like you're talking about that you're seeing? Yeah, there are several that could do it, you know, basically. I'm I'm sure that Cameron can do that if he wants to and Spielberg too. But... um, but they have not done so, in fact. Yeah, I mean, what's the? Is it, can you recall the last studio large-scale film that that worked for you? Well, that was probably Ben Hur. <laughs> the Ben Hur, the, the remake of Ben Hur, okay. and therefore, before the other uh, adventure <laughs> that I had was uh, Superman versus Spider-Man, you know, <laughs> which was also uh, not good. No, it, it didn't was, work. No. I mean, uh, of course, I mean there is there is talent enough in Los Angeles or in, in the whole of the United States. Talent, talent uh, actor-wise, actress-wise, and, and crew-wise. And I think a lot of the possibilities of all these people are, is not used at the moment. Well, th- yeah, that's the frustrating I mean, thing. Or it, yeah. or it is basically, let's say, uh, uh, the, a television has uh, seen its possibilities there right. and took a, a, a character and narrative uh, towards them and left left all the special effects to the, to the studio yeah. to the studios and so um, uh, yeah that I think is a, is a big mistake and I I strongly believe that we need at least to a certain degree go back to a bit more interesting narrative and 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 also a little bit more um, character yes and but. Uh, I I don't see it happening yet. You don't see hope for this. No, I, 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 <laughs> as I said, it. you know, I, I I every year think, well, okay, now they've seen enough. Now they go a bit. Perhaps they go into uh, in further uh, 3D or whatever, or get these Google's uh, goggles <laughs> on, or whatever. And uh, um, I don't know. Uh, it's so, a bit depressing, I think. You know that so much talent, so much of the talent that's there is not used. I agree. I mean, you mentioned something like even Batman versus Superman. You look at that cast. You look at the the. I mean, clearly the crew. I mean, behind the scenes, they're amazing, and it's all just poured into a product that's just not worthy of their talents. Right. Yeah, I, I feel so. But um, but yeah, there's hope. It's, there's hell. It's, it's really <laughs> uh, going for the for. Trying to guess that basically what what the that the audience wants to see what they have already seen. Right. In fact. So uh, in in the um, in the buildup of L in, in creating L, this was actually you intended to make this in the states here in the United States with uh, an American cast with a, a quote unquote you know American movie star. Sure. There were talks of like uh, Nicole Kidman or even Sharon Stone. Um, what happened? Was it the actors that were that shied away from the material? Yes, uh, mostly. Of course, there was also uh, the idea of uh, doing a French-American co-production, basically mm-hmm. what was uh, in the background of uh, of all our idea, or Said Ben Said's, the producer's idea to make it to an American movie. Um, uh, uh, pre- um, m- uh, th- that was not possible either. There was also from the financial uh, uh, point of view, there was no I- interest of anybody or any studio, or whatever, uh, to participate in this script. Mm-hmm. Huh? I mean, we're talking really about the script that was ri- written by an American writer, David Burke, but the the, fi- the financiers or the, men- the people with, with money and the actresses that we approached, all let's say A-level a- actresses, refused, but uh, refused 
categorically. I mean, really a sharp no. What, Absolutely what, did, not. Did they say why? What was it based no, on? No. No, of course they didn't say why. No, and, and and you hear these things mostly through agents and managers. Right. You hope that then you still have to hope that that the, that the actress uh, herself read it, or that was basically, or perhaps the agent. I mean, it has to do with the fact that L is not a revenge movie. Right. I think basically, if the, if the third act would have been about she takes revenge, she finds out at the end of the second act who the, who the rapist was. Eh? The man is in the beginning, he's masked, so yeah. she doesn't know. She finds out at the end of the second act, uh, it's this and this person. Um, and then the third act would be her revenge. That sure. would be, uh, uh, let's say... That's an, the playbook. That's what you do. That would be yeah, <laughs> an, an American way of, of looking at, at movies. And the fact that that doesn't happen, although you could argue, let's say that she gets her revenge anyhow. I mean, and people see it when they see the movie. Then, But by coincidence, I would say, in it, she, she gets her revenge. Yeah. And and um, But the third act is really about something completely different. She goes in, a, in, in, say, in the opposite direction, right. uh, which meaning stretching out her hand to the rapist. Huh? And, uh, and um, I think that was the reason that... Uh, actresses of, of name basically didn't want to do it. Right. Well, luckily you got someone of, of great note and great talent and Isabel Hubert is being celebrated justifiably for this amazing performance. And it's, you know, on, again, if you follow the playbook on paper, it's not the kind of film that generally is considered awards material, but people are talking about it in that vein. And that's that's an exciting prospect. It's Yeah. I, 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 in, in, it's interesting that in <clears throat> evangelical terms, I would say, that you can say this movie is about love your enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is Jesus. Huh? Jesus did not say really love your neighbor because right. that's easy. You need your neighbor, you know. So <laughs> they, Jesus really said love your enemy. And that is one of the most difficult things to achieve in life anyhow. Yeah. I mean, who, who is able... First, I, I, I believe that Jesus was talking hyperbolically. Yeah, or let's, yeah like a hy, hy, uh, hyper, hyper... How do you say that? Hyper, hyperbole? Hyper, hyperbole, yeah. yeah right. And uh, in a sort of over-the-top way. Uh, um, but I think what he was pointing... He was pointing something out... Something yeah. that that we should try to achieve, of course, and um, and in fact, there was something interesting happening in the in the beginning of uh, uh, Obama's uh, presidency when he was in uh, Cairo and bas- and and uh, told there the people there that uh, from the American point of view uh, that we Americans uh, should step in the shoes of the enemy, just to look at ourselves, and th- that is is. Coming close to Jesus, huh? Yeah, yeah interesting. Sure, sure. And and of course, he failed. In fact, I mean, he tried. But, well, uh, <laughs> well, as we sit here in the midst of this election, but, uh, sadly, forty uh, percent right. of the country seems to not want to think about anyone but their own self-interest. And no, that's it's very weird what's happening here. Yeah. And. Um, that uh, you, uh, of course, we knew, and 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 that there was something like that. Yeah. And in fact, uh, some of 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 Starship Trooper is playing with these kind of list, li- some fascistic ideas. In sure. fact, and um, uh, but that it would be so so big, 
that there were that it would, we were do, we're talking about forty percent, isn't it? Forty two or three. That is thinking in that direction. That is is something that I and I, I during the thirty years that I'm now living here had not really noticed. Now, of course, you could say living in Los Angeles is not the best place to judge the country, <laughs> isn't it? Fair but, enough. But but it it, it it it's for, for a lot of people. I think it was basically surprising that this. Uh, let's say first reactions to the to the Trump campaign were so extremely positive. Well, he he's a character out of like the commercials in RoboCop or right. the world of Starship Troopers. Right, like yeah. that that is not a far leap. No, no, clear. I mean, I, I fully realize that, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, without saying that the Starship Troopers was prophetic, we were still at Numaya and I when we were working on the script. We were pretty much still aware of, of certain streams in American uh, consciousness. And in, in, in what was happening in, the, in already happening in the United States, but that was like like small elements, you know, that right. you start over, and then we were exaggerating them for, uh, let's say, to yeah, uh, to make not to be giving messages, but to 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 play with it, a kind of. It is a very playful, uh, let's say, uh, attack attack on. I think um, Starship Troopers on on safe fascist possibilities in a big country. Right. You're listening to Happy, Sad, Confused. We'll be right back after this. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. It's electrified. So you can boogie, woogie, woogie into the forest. Boogie. Boogie, woogie, woogie through the mud. Or boogie, woogie, woogie to work. Where you boogie woogie woogie down the hall to your boss's office to tell him you quit. Then you boogie woogie woogie to the elevator as he boogie woogie woogies after you, begging, please take me with you. The electrified Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. Learn more at Jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. So, so if you'll indulge me, we can backtrack a, a bit to um, you know your 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 film work that was celebrated pre Hollywood, pre pre Robocop and Basic Instinct, etc. Um, when were you were you embraced in Holland for the films that you were doing? Were were you celebrated there? What was your identity there as a filmmaker? Um, I, I mean, from an audience point of view, uh, let's say that was always very positive. All these movies that we did there were extremely successful. It's still uh, one of them is still the best. Uh, Right, in Turkish, like still like the most, the yeah. most successful movie, a Dutch movie ever made. But at that time, uh, let's say the committees that basically the government committees that uh, that uh, finance uh, European movies, uh, European movies. Not uh, in, like in the United States, where companies basically uh, give you the money. In Europe, it's uh, yes, also independent money, but there is a lot of government money. So that's that, and you get that government, uh, that money you get that, that can be 30, 40, 50, even 60% of the budget can come from the government. That's not only in Holland, so it's in all the European countries. And uh, let's say European uh, cinema would not exist without uh, government uh, help. Right. And so what happened at that time, we are talking about the 70s, 80s, is that these committees became more and more in Holland to uh, leftish. And then they felt that my movies were perverted, decadent, social, uh, sociologically, let's say, uh, 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 lacked any social insight, <laughs> lacked this, lacked that. And, and so they started to decide to not give me money anymore. So the more... 
the more success I had with the movies, the less they gave me. <laughs> and basically, that was the reason, ultimately the reason that basically I, I decided, in fact, I must say, to be honest, my wife decided to go to the United States because we had been getting invitations all the time, but I really... I was never like, oh, I want to go Hollywood. I want to be a Hollywood director. I, I was very happy, like Ingmar Bergman, with my small group of people and all talented actors and actresses and crew. I was very happy in Holland, uh, making movies there. But because of the circumstances, uh, uh, and of course the, the fact that I got all these invitations, uh, in, included even from uh, Steven Spielberg, to come to the United States, which I didn't dare to do, but my, but my wife dared and basically and pushed me over the border. In fact, and well, we're and, grateful. To and her. so that's why I left. So, did, what was the was for instance, like you mentioned Spielberg? Was that just to come and meet, or was that over a specific project, or what? Was a general basically was out of he called out of admiration for a soldier warrant uh, that he liked very very much and said that basically you uh, you should come here come here there's a big country you make big bigger movies and those it's too small Holland <laughs> so what were and, the, what, and then, yeah, then he introduced me to the studios yeah he did what yeah. what were the first things do you recall the first things that you were offered that piqued your interest before Robocop. Um, and, uh, uh, before that, there was an Agatha Christie story, basically that that uh, uh, that, uh, that I was uh, working on. Basically, uh, I thought it was more English, probably, uh, um, but it was supposed to be with American money. Uh, it's one of the, the the few, the only novel that Agatha Christie wrote that is historical. Oh, I right. mean, it's a, it's a thriller situated in the time of the Pharaohs. Uh, Death Comes as, as the End, it's called. It's not so well known. So it was a really interesting project, I thought, because you would be able to do all this yeah, with the pharaohs and all that. Uh, is that in the background uh, that with the Nile and the pyramids and all that? And, and um, that was offered to me, yeah, yeah. sure. And uh, I think there were also a couple of projects uh, with Jane Fonda and Barbara Streisand, in fact. But none of that really happened. Um, that was had to do with, uh, yeah, you never, I mean, in retrospect, you forget why things don't <laughs> go forward, but but ultimately the one that went forward turned out to be Robocop. So did you, you immediately saw the potential of, uh, as you say, kind of you're in for it was seeing this as kind of a, a Jesus parable in a way, right? That was ultimately that took me, uh, uh, that took me some time to see that. Huh? Yeah. I mean, when, when I read the script for the first time, I just threw it away. I thought it was <laughs> ridiculous, you know? I mean, I make, no, if you look at the Dutch movies, all realism, you right. know, it's, it's not, there's no, uh, special effects. It's really about people, uh, like people. Uh, ba- a lot of the, um, most of the movies I made in Holland were based on biographies and autobiographies. So it was very close to real life. And then, of course, Robocop was like. <laughs> <laughs> was that your first? So that must have been your first battle with the motion picture uh, yeah, the MPAA sure. in terms of the, well, the we rating. had already this, this semi-American uh, uh, movie, Flesh and Blood. It was yeah. like in between the Dutch and the American career. That was already I was already warned because <laughs> I had to recut that and recut that for the American market. You know, yeah. and Robocop was the, was the, was uh, I think we had to go back seven or eight times to the uh, MPAA, the rating board, to get an R rating. So we I, I had to to cut it. I mean, it felt that it was too violent. 
too strong, they call it. They say, <laughs> it's too strong. That <laughs> is the expression they used at that time. <laughs> it wasn't too strong for 11-year-old Josh. I handled it. I'm okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I haven't heard well, anybody. perhaps because I cut some stuff out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd seen the unrated version. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you're not one that that, uh, that subscribes to the uh, you know theory of some that, uh, for instance, a violent film – begets violence, that it influences people in that well, way. Well, I have studied that at the time that it was a whole topic, which was in, in, the, in the 80s, of course, there were a lot of, um, was a lot of writing, uh, psychological writing. And I, I, what I got out of that, that is not that it was, a, that there was no causality between, uh, it's not that a violent mo- movie makes you violent. No. That the, the, the evidence was, was the statistical evidence was against that, but there was a correlation. That m- meaning, if 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 you are a violent person, you like violent movies, or if you like violent mo- uh, movies, you're probably violent yourself. Right. So that I believe, but that it stimulates. I mean, how can it basically? Everything what's happening in the world is ten times worse. I mean, if you if you do really uh, try to follow a little bit what's happening in the Middle East, isn't it? I mean, how can you, I mean it's horrible. Yeah. And even if you look at the at the war in Vietnam, I mean, them so many people killed there. So I mean, why would you? Why would then the violence of film? Yeah, make you violent. You know, I I I don't buy that. You know, I think. It confirms you if you're violent, basically, you, you will look at violent movies, but that you become violent because you see, well, so you would not become violent because hearing that, uh, let's say, 500,000 people or, or 1 million, 2 million people are killed, that doesn't make you violent. And But the movie, there's one movie that is just on the screen and it's all, t- all not true, it's all, that basically influences you more. I don't believe that. Uh, moving to the next film, um, Total Recall. Um, I mean, I've read a lot about sort of the development of that film. When you when it came to you, had it already? Because there were talks of like Cronenberg was going to do it with someone like many with William Hurt or Richard right. Dreyfuss, those right. kinds of types of actors. Right. Obviously, it ended up with one of Arnold's best. Uh, I think really like utilized his talents as, as best as anybody outside of James Cameron perhaps has. Um, was Arnold attached at that time? Whose idea was that? And, and Arnold wanted to, to, uh, Arnold knew about the project when it was in the hands of the producer Dino De Laurentiis, and he wanted to do that movie for a long time. But and he knew Dino from uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian, sure. and so. Uh, but Dino felt that, that that if you look at the script or original no, no, uh, short story of uh, Philip Dick, then you see that this, the the main character is like an accountant, right? Uh, a measly guy, and, and Dino felt that Arnold would be absolutely impossible. So Arnold was really disappointed that he could not make that movie. Then when Dino basically went more or less bankrupt. In in, in in Australia, I was there with the, uh, uh, already uh, uh, setting up. The uh, Bruce Beresford was at that time uh, oh, wow. uh, 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 um, setting it up already. Yeah. Yeah? They were not shooting yet, but just setting. But then the the company went down, and then uh, and uh, then elements of the company were for sale. Arnold called Mario Casar, basically, who was the Carol Coe Carol Coe guy, yeah. um, a CEO uh, at that time, still with Andy Vina, and um, and said basically, buy me that script. <laughs> and Mario did. He bought he bought the script, and then Arnold said, and now I, I wanted the, the I want the director of Robocop. 
Were you? So it was Arnold in charge in in the whole movie. <laughs> it was. I, I've never seen that. The, uh, Arnold was in charge of everything. That was the height of his powers. He was ruling yeah, but, the but, planet. He used them well. You know. He did. He used. He didn't abuse them. He <laughs> used them basically. If 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 there would be me meetings about uh, posters, right? He would have all kind of ideas and he would reject things. And uh, in general, I was sitting there. You know, I wouldn't even dare to open my mouth. You know, <laughs> but I was really. Like, like uh, uh, surprised how much let's say insight he had in, oh. in all these aspects of filmmaking. You know, I learned a lot from Arnold. Basically, how to handle uh, uh, how to handle the crew, how to how to work with people. We shot the whole movie in Mexico City. Right. How do you work with a, with a crew that is for 80 percent uh, Mexican? And he did that in such a socially gifted guy that basically learned, started to learn a little bit Spanish. So he could basically <laughs> greet everybody in Spanish and say, always invite the crew, Paul. And, and I learned from him another thing. He said, there's two things about filmmaking that you have to basically take into account. And that is one is making the movie, and you have to go hundred percent, isn't it? Arnold goes always for movies hundred percent. Yeah. And but that's one. There is also another a very important aspect to filmmaking, that is the publicity, and you should do that also with the same kind of intentions by by, by as if you make the movie again. And that was the last, last thing he told me. <laughs> he said, and don't forget when you do publicity to mention already your next movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, but I, I mean, I give now a little bit, uh, uh, let's say, uh, examples of Ar who Arnold could be. Yeah, know? yeah. I was going to say, that guy could be a politician. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. No, no, well, and he was, of course, always already at that time very interested in politics. Yeah. We, we disagreed, of course, on politics, but it didn't matter with him, you know. I mean, he would be, uh, he would never be getting angry if you would have a different opinion. He said, no, I think I'm right. But, <laughs> but <laughs> were, were you on the same page in terms of, I mean, some people call that ending an ambiguous one. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it, it's not necessarily for me. I mean, I don't know. I, from my perspective, it seems like it's clearly no, it was a dream. It's uh, the idea was not to. Uh, the idea was to make a movie that would be working on on both levels. Right, it works. So both it, ways, it, yeah. it, it, that the movie can be completely analyzed as 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 a dream uh, or a dream that starts at a certain certain moment, or there is another reality there, and it, it's true. He was in Mars. So uh, that was what we tried to do. I mean, for me, the most important scene of the movie is really when this, uh, uh, when he's on, on the planet Mars in a hotel or whatever it is, and this guy comes in, Doctor Edgemar, and, and 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 says, you know, I have to tell you, but you, everything that happened, all these, uh, let's say, adventurous thing, and you're escaping and all that stuff, that never happened. You right. know, you're still asleep. You're still asleep in that. In that uh, uh, recall uh, office, the lab, sure, yeah. and there's a problem because we try to wake uh, to wake you up, but we can't do it, you know. And so they sent me in into your dream to say, okay, you have to eat that pill, and then uh, if you t eat the pill now, you will come back to reality, and you will be based and. Well, that's the scene that that sells that's the film because that 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 gives it depth and and takes and you out of it and get, makes you right. reevaluate everything. Right, and then basically, so it's so interesting that, that uh, I think that was really Gary Goldman and I that added that, uh, especially Gary, um, not uh, the original writers, uh, that 
he then tells, Dr. Edgemar tells you the, the whole story of the rest of the movie. In fact, <laughs> yeah, you're going to be, if you don't uh, take the pill, then this is going to happen. He says, the, the walls of reality will fall apart. Of course, the, the walls fall apart <laughs> immediately after that. He tells you exactly what's going to happen. That you will be, uh, that's the bosom body of uh, Kohagen, or um, but you will also be the savior of the, of the planet and stuff like that. Yeah, And then, that all happens, but people <laughs> forgot, somehow are still interested. Well, they're caught up in it. They're caught up in it, and it's not that they, they feel... Uh, it's so weird that they uh, that they know, in fact, what's going to happen, but they don't believe it anyhow, and then when it happens, they say, oh, yeah, but, uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, among the, 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 the folklore about basic instinct was that Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone didn't necessarily get along famously. Maybe you can refute that or not, but I'm, I'm curious... For you, the key of directing some very graphic, intimate sex scenes, perhaps even when a co-star doesn't necessarily get along that well with a, a co-star, is that tricky for you? I mean, I didn't notice that really. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know where, uh, uh, on what that's really based. Um, it was more so that um, uh, Michael, from the in the beginning, really wanted somebody like Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, to to play the he felt that the it needed the, an A-list star at that time uh, to, to, to have to share the burden the nudity burden the sexual burden of the movie to share that with a top actress that it would at least be divided over two people and and um, and that didn't happen of course that none of these actresses wanted to do it because uh, because of of my approach to the script isn't it I, that yeah. everything uh, would be really. It would be really nude, you know. <laughs> there was no escape there. there. There was one quote at the time that I read that, that at the time you, your goal was to be the first Hollywood film to have an erect penis in it. Is that true? Was that a no. goal at the time? <laughs> not on your in list. In fact, there is not an erect penis in I the whole saying, movie. Yeah. I did that basically already in Spetters, yes. <laughs> you did it already. Who yeah. cares? No, no. But I mean, I, I, don't, I, I absolutely never thought that that would be possible in an American movie. You right. know? No. Now, we, we went very far, basically uh, uh, took a lot of time to, to do the sexual scenes. But I think at that time, um, in my opinion, Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone got along very, very well. What is basically probably not has been so clear to, to uh, not to, to produ producers, neither critics, neither perhaps the audience, is that Michael Douglas added by being there and by being, uh, let's say, cont uh, uh, let's say antagonistic on the set uh, during the scenes, eh? strongly antagonistic and, and challenging to Sharon that basically and that Michael Douglas uh, was able basically to bring out all her talents you know that she had she needed to really walk on her toes to to basically to counter Michael and even if he would not be in frame even if he would be the side of the camera giving the the, sure. the other dialogue then he would be completely in character and challenge her all the time you know i mean michael being a producer also knew that his performance would be de depend on her performance. And I thought it was fantastic to watch, you know. But what Michael basically uh, added to the movie, which you don't see, that you say, okay, yeah, uh, it's Sharon. But I think he basically, of course, she did it. It is her talent. But he basically was really uh, capable, able 
to bring that out yeah. in the most uh, distinctive way, you know. I, I, I was all in awe, really, what happened there at the, at the set, you know, how he, that she became really this person because he was, like, against <laughs> her, you know. I'm, I'm saddened to say that apparently your your press day continues because I, I have so many other questions about uh, showgirls and, and starship troopers. I mean, the film that I, I positively adore, uh, not to mention Black Book, etc. Um, but I, I'm thrilled that you made the time to come here today and to talk about Elle, which is, is a great piece of work. And I hope people check it out. I know they will. It's gotten great reviews justifiably. Uh, Isabel Huppert, one of the greatest actors on the planet, is just phenomenal in it. And um, I hope you enjoyed the this publicity circuit and this run. And I hope it gets a great uh, worthy release for you, sir. Well, thank you very much. I mean, certainly this conversation was extremely pleasant, I thought. You know, thank you very much Thanks, Paul. for asking uh, questions that were interesting to answer. And after so many interviews, it's sometimes difficult because, <laughs> the, you know, the questions are too much. And I think uh, this went very uh, spontaneous and, and, uh, and innovative. So um, I liked you, it very much. And uh, thank you very much. I've been prepping for it since I was 11. I've been w uh, working up to this moment. So we, right. we made it. Well, okay. <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That was Paul Verhoeven. Remember to check out L in theaters on November 11th. Okay, next up on the podcast, Sammy, is Naomi Harris. Here she is. We've been talking about this film for a while, Moonlight. If I haven't talked about it enough, here comes another conversation because, damn it, you guys need to see this movie. You, you just need to see it just here in on the conversation for awards time because this is going to get a ton of nominations. Yeah, I don't want to sound ignorant. Don't sound ignorant, no, Sammy. I need I'm trying to, to help it. you. I appreciate it. I need it. Okay, so even if you haven't seen it yet, this is, this conversation still works because Naomi Harris is um, an actor who, even if you don't know her name, you've seen her in a ton of things, whether it's 28 Days Later, the last two James Bond films, the Pirates movies. She's been in a lot of stuff and she's very chameleon-like. She always transforms uh, uh, to such a degree that I, I, it's almost to her her detriment in a way because you don't know, oh, wait, that's Naomi Harris. I don't remember her, but she always looks different. She has a different accent, et cetera. And the same can be said for her new role in Moonlight, which is now in theaters. And by the way, is doing great business in limited release. Um, as I said, I think it's going to be around for a while. So check out Moonlight and enjoy this conversation uh, with the very talented Naomi Harris. I'm so thrilled to welcome uh, Naomi Harris, our second uh, cast member from uh, this film that I adore, Moonlight. Aww, welcome, Naomi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as I was saying to you as you sat down here today, mm -hmm. we were, were privileged to have Mahershala on recently. Um, so fantastic. Yeah. And as are you in this film and throughout your career. I, uh, I was telling him and I'll bore the listeners with the same story. I was at Toronto mm -hmm. and, I, and I saw this film and I walked out of it and I was just so moved mm -hmm. and, and really felt such um, – Happiness for for the experience, but also for the the opportunities for you for actors that I'd seen in other contexts mm. that that just had such great material to work with, and mm. so just hit it out of the park. It must mm -hmm. be a, a very gratifying time for you right now to be talking about this. Yeah, it's it's you know it's really gratifying, and it's also just an incredible experience to be going to these Q and As and to be opening the movie um, and to see how this movie kind of just deeply connects with people's hearts. You know, it's a movie that manages to kind of rip apart all the labels that we attach to ourselves, that society wants to attach to us and just speak to people's heart and say, fundamentally, we're all on the same journey and that journey is for love, truth, connection and to find out what our, or who our authentic identity is. No, or what our authentic identity sure. is, rather. Well, it, it, it's also, I think, a film that um, I, I think it works in, in, in certain ways because of its specificity, right? It's mm -hmm. a very specific story in a specific place, mm -hmm. um, and yet it is 
as you say, it has these universal themes that we can yeah. all relate to. And I think that's yeah. um, that's probably why it's working for audiences, mm-hmm. if I had to guess. Yeah. Um, like, how many times in your career have you been this happy <laughs> with a product? Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot of projects that I'm really proud of. Sure. But I have never been part of anything that has connected with an audience in this way. You know, um, at Telluride, which was the first place that we showed the film, um, Barry, our director, actually had a 70-year-old man sobbing into his arms. And likewise, I was talking to a girl about the movie who'd seen it, and then she ended up sobbing in my arms as well. And it's just, it's extraordinary to see how deeply people are affected by it. Yeah. When you look back, um, were movies a big part of your childhood was... Was pop culture generally? Were you, what kind of kid were you in terms of – I mean I, I know you obviously acted as a kid but um, – Yeah, you know what? It's really weird because people always ask me like where did you get your passion for acting from and was it from seeing movies? And it actually really wasn't. I just always loved this thing of performing, pretending to be someone else. I used to spend hours in front of the mirror as a kid trying to make myself cry, imagining that I was in another world. But I don't know why. I don't know why I had that impetus to do that. I just really enjoyed it and it's still – you know, more than anything, it's the actual process of acting that I enjoy. This ability to just delve deep and connect with another human being in a way that perhaps you wouldn't even connect with your closest friends, but sure. you get an environment on set where you're allowed to do that. Yeah, it's a license to be like intimate and access the parts of exactly. our, our humanity that we frankly don't get a chance to indulge exactly. in. Exactly. And, and to discover life. also those parts of yourself that you didn't realize were there. Like, I missed teetotal. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't even drink coffee. So to go from me to like a crack addict is a massive jump and one that absolutely terrified me. And I didn't realize that I had that in me. Um, But I discovered that. And I actually, what I discovered through the journey was that there's a lot smaller gap between myself and Paula or anybody suffering from addiction than I initially thought. So I got to confront my own judgments. And that's so beautiful. I think that's one of the wonderful things I adore about acting is that it forces you to do that. Is it it true that on the face of it, at first, this wasn't the kind of role that you were necessarily attracted to or when it was presented to you? No, I was really scared by the idea of taking on this role because I I think as an actor, you have very few choices. You know, you don't have... um, You don't have any control over the material, Um, really. You know, the director directs it the way he wants to do. Then the editor edits the way that he wants, he or she wants, rather. And sometimes your work is presented back to you in a way that you think, oh, my gosh, I never saw it in that way. And I never wanted it to be that either. But I think one of the few areas where you do have control is in terms of what you choose to be part of. And so I always wanted to make my choices based on representing positive images of women and positive images of black women in particular. And so I was really apprehensive about taking on the role of a crack addict because I'd kind of always drawn the line there. Yeah. So what what made the difference in the end? What was the turning point? The turning point for me was speaking to Barry Jenkins, our director, and him explaining to me that the story is semi-autobiographical. It's based on his life and the uh, life of um, Terrell McCraney, the playwright, the, the playwright yeah. right? And it's an amalgamation of their stories. And he said, look, I don't want to ask you to play a stereotype, nor do I want you to represent what seemingly seems like a negative um, representation of a black woman. But the reality is I want to tell my story 
And to do that, I have to tell my mother's story. And my mother was a crack addict. So what do I do? So effectively, he asked me to play his mum. And I thought, here's someone who has a vested interest in ensuring that this character is three-dimensional and has her full humanity. So when you're on, and I know you've talked about this a lot, and I apologize, but it is fascinating that for those that don't know, this this performance that you see in the film, and the film, if you haven't seen it yet, is kind of told in three sections and three portions of, of a young boy, a young man's life. Um, and this part that you are so fantastic in and, and you see really a journey for your character as well mm-hmm. was shot in three days. Yes. Which is just three mind-boggling. And not in sequence either. So, not in sequence. You were yeah. in the middle of press for – for a Bond Spectre, film for Spectre. Yeah. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so do you, do you, is that like a badge of honor? Are you like embarrassed to say that or excited to say that? Like, yeah, I got that done in three days, by the way, guys. Do you know what? I actually watched the movie and I think I can't believe that we did that in three days. I didn't even know how we did it. We were forced to because I had visa issues. I'm British, obviously. And um, for some reason, something got messed up at the visa office and I couldn't get my re- uh, visa. So it was never meant to be shot over three days, but we had to do it like that. Wow. And um cram it all in but it just meant I had to do a tremendous amount of research beforehand so I spent a month researching this character and getting to grips with what addiction is all about and really understanding the character inside and out because I knew when I arrived I had to hit the ground running well not only that I think I was hearing another interview with 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 Barry about this perhaps where like the first scene you shot correct me if I'm wrong is the confrontation scene where you're trying to get money because of your habit from your own son which is maybe the most heartbreaking they're all kind of heartbreaking Scenes in their own way, but that that scene in particular really hits you uh, at your core. I yeah. feel so. Give me a sense of sort of are you? I mean, you've obviously been doing this virtually all your life, yeah. so this is your chosen profession. You know mm-hmm. what you're doing. That being said, do you feel a pressure? Do you get oh, off gosh. on that pressure when you have to dive in? into a scene like that on the first day? No, that was a tough one. That was really tough because, you know, I also, I'd only been rehearsing to myself in my hotel rooms that I, you know, because I'd been going every four days, I was in a different hotel and different country. Um, And so it was just me and my hotel walls that had seen my performance. And then suddenly I get thrust into this environment with a director who I know his mother was a crack addict. And so he knows what addiction looks like. And I'm just not sure, you know, I'm basing this on YouTube clips that I've seen of interviews with crack addicts. And I just think, I don't know whether this is going to, you know, live up to what he wants, to his expectations. So it was a terrifying day for me. And the last thing you want to do, obviously, and uh, you all successfully avoided this is like Mm -hmm. be the, because we've seen types, these kind of archetypes in films mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't want to be the caricature of that. Exactly. You want to humanize this person and make it exactly. feel like, you know, she's her own tragic figure. She's mm-hmm. a very, like, you know, I think, uh, to your credit, you empathize with this character too by the end, and yeah. you see that she's a human being, and, and as you say, we maybe relate to her more than we would think that we do. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about it is, from doing my research, the, the biggest thing that I found was that addiction really is all about pain and wanting to run away and escape your pain. And it's just that um, people with addictions, well, crack addiction in particular, are doing it in a a way that's socially unacceptable and that's extremely self-destructive. But ultimately, that's no different from any of us because we all have our own emotional baggage that we are trying to escape. We're just doing it in very different ways. There's more Happy, Sad, Confused coming up after this break. So 
so you you seem to be without a vice in your day to day life. <laughs> I'm sure I do have a vice. <laughs> well, that's what I'm, I'm asking. Sure so what's what's the closest thing to oh a vice gosh, that you have? To a, closest to crack addiction? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not saying, well, I'm not saying on that end, but maybe a, a one and uh, one or a two on the one to ten oh scale. Oh gosh, I think overworking. You know, yeah. you seem I, to be from I, reading up. You seem to be a Type A personality. I'm a very I'm absolutely. Oh my gosh, you've summed me up already. I can't believe it. Am I no, that easy to read? No, no, no. It, this is that's a compliment in my book. Don't worry. Thank you. <laughs> is that is that is that accurate? Is that from the start when you yeah, were a kid? Were you that kind of absolutely. person? Absolutely. I'm always, you know, I was always that kid who's like does her homework on time, you know, sits at the very front of the class, answers all the questions, Miss Goody Two-Shoes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and was was acting the first thing that you found that you could focus those energies for good on? Like, was that the first kind of obsession where you found, like, a, a reason to um, pour your love and your, your passion into? Or was there anything else? I think it was a way of really actually overcoming my shyness because I, I was very, very shy when I was young. Um, and... Acting has been extraordinary in that sense because it just forced me to come out of my shell. And not just because of this process of acting where you have to inhabit somebody else, but also from doing everything else that surrounds the acting professions, like sitting down here today (laughs) with you. You know, normally that would have sent me into a sweat. And I I probably, at the start of my career, I just would not have been able to do it. But I've seen myself grow tremendously and been stretched, which is it's such a wonderful thing to to see because I'm all about growth. You know, I'm just yeah. always wanting to grow and learn. And uh, I think acting challenges you to do that in a way that many other professions don't allow you to do. Well, so, and I'm fascinated and I want to talk about the acting, but I'm also fascinated by um, what you just alluded to, which is like the, the machinations around it. And you've mm-hmm. worked in these franchises that necessitate traveling the world and yeah. talking to every kind of journalist with every kind of agenda in in these bizarre circumstances. Sidestepping all those little holes that they want to just pull you down. Yeah, and and working on projects that that have a lot of secrecy around Mm -hmm. them. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a world that I in particular (laughs) am obsessed with because it's my my world too in a different way. Um, But give me a sense of sort of like when or how did you kind of figure out how to handle that part of it? When was the first time you had to deal with the the press in that way? And what were the big learnings that you kind of had? The biggest um, jump in the learning curve for me was um, being part of Skyfall. So, you know, that's a whole nother level. That was a whole nother nother level. And I thought, you know, I'd done Pirates of the Caribbean. I've done these other films that, you know, people have seen. But the level of interest in that movie is something even now you know I I like haven't done it for several years now and but the still every interview I'm asked about it you know know. and in particular when I did Skyfall you know because I was pretending to be a Bond girl but all along I knew I was Miss Moneypenny and holding that secret (laughs) in oh my god it nearly killed me it was the best training ever (laughs) I feel like I became a CIA agent (laughs) so okay so now I can run down the questions you were asked in every every uh, interview Mm -hmm. who should be the next Bond is Daniel coming back exactly that's the those are the questions right there. Yes. So what are your stock answers? What do you do you have My legitimate? My stock answers yeah. are um I love Daniel Craig, but I do <laughs> because I just I have to say I love Daniel Craig, so they won't drag me down to asking, you know, like who's gonna be the next bond. So I just say, no, Daniel's the best bond that we have. He's but your the bond. reality is he is the best bond, right? He's, He's the best awesome. bond yes. that we've had in like a decade for sure. Yes. So um well we'll get back to that. Well let's go back to the chronology. So you okay. so you're uh, you're a kid, you land a pretty major part on a major TV show, as I understand it, back home. Yes. I mean, was um, it was it a big deal at the time, the the first show you were the on? The first show I was on was Simon and the Witch, yes. And I was only nine years old, yes. And from what I understand, like that 
that actually delivered a degree of celebrity in your own yeah. in your own world, and yeah. and maybe that wasn't the best thing for your social life and no, school life. No, it right? really wasn't. I was yeah, I was bullied at school, and it was largely because of being on that TV show because they just thought I was too big for my boots and wanted to pull me down a bit. <laughs> and know? so, how did that? How did that manifest? Like, how did that play out? And how did you deal with it at the time? Well, it's interesting because, you know, one of the themes in Moonlight is bullying. And so um, there's this scene where um, Chiron is uh, waiting in kind of a cage-like environment, one of the outdoor rooms of the school. And he's watching the bullies downstairs and he's thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, how am I going to get home? Because they're waiting to beat him up. And I remember those moments being at school and being that terrified. I remember one particular um, time when um, one of the bullies said to me that she was going to beat me up after school. And so I was so scared that I was walking down the hallway and she was there and our headmaster was there as well. And so I just decided to attack her because I figured if I attack her in front of the headmaster, he's going to break it up. I'm going to be okay. Right. Then he's going to call our mums and I'm not going to get beaten after school. <laughs> so that's what I did. Preemptive strike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> did it play out as you, as you, you hoped? You know what the weird thing is? It's so bizarre. I was bullied for years at secondary school. And that one attack changed everything. Yeah, the next you had the day, rap. You yes, had, yeah. But the next day, she apologized to me and she didn't bully me anymore. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> is this the right like, message I, to send? I'm not, not sure. not the right message at all. I don't know what <laughs> happened there. But yeah, it was it was the bizarrest thing to me. Look at that. Whatever got you through. You yeah, made it through, exactly. clearly. I clearly made it through. So what, sca- what scares you nowadays? Clearly, you're not scared. Or maybe you are by different mm-hmm. parts. Maybe that's a part of the process. Like what- I'm absolutely scared yeah. each project that I take on. And Moonlight, absolutely terrifying. Me, I just didn't. I didn't know how I was going to reach this character. But that's the joy, isn't it? You know, to do something where you think I'll never be able to reach that, and then you do. You find her. It's incredibly liberating. Oh, and when is the, when and where does the satisfaction come for specifically with Moonlight? Does it happen on set? It. Yeah, in doing it. When you've reached it and you feel it, you know, and you, you, you really you've are reached your own potential, yeah. and you've come close yeah. to what you wanted. Yeah. You've connected to something in yourself that you didn't know was there initially and um, you found truth. Because I don't think characters are really outside of you. I think they're all within. It's just the outside, you know, the research outside helps to access that part of yourself that's hidden. Well, and one of the things that that strikes me when I start to like, you know, think about the things I've seen you in and look at your career is, I mean, to your credit, you really are very chameleon-like. You can, you can, you can, you can transform from. <laughs> That's what I enjoy, though. You it's, know, it's kind yeah. of remarkable, and not mm. many actors are able to kind of, I think, go to the range that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, do you are you of the mindset that virtually anything is within your grasp, or there are some things that are just not in your skill set? Um, I would say singing and dancing, much as I would love <laughs> them to be part of my skill set, are not. Okay, so no <laughs> like, musicals, outside no. of musicals. And you know, that's the one thing that I would love to really? do. Really? Do you appreciate them? I love them? musicals. Yeah. I adore them and I would love to be in a musical, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Have you ever Unless, tried, like, like Beyonce seriously? will do, you know, the voiceover for me. <laughs> hey, it's happened before. Back in My Fair Lady days, they did that kind of thing. Um, did you? Was that a rude awakening as a kid or in recent times did you, like, go up for a musical and realize, oh, no, that... Uh, this is just oh not no! I've work. always known, and I've <laughs> always been told, like, no, you can't, you can't sing. Um, <laughs> when were you told or validated that yes, you can act? Like, what? Who told you, or how did you know when you were a kid? Because that's part of the journey, right? Is like to realize. That's part of why I assume you yeah. stuck with it. Is like, oh, I'm actually good at this, and people seem to acknowledge that. Um, or was it simply I, I enjoy it? No, I, d- I don't really remember anybody kind of saying you can do this. But what I remember is, you know, getting parts, like auditioning and and basically 
as a kid, I got everything that I went up for. So it was a huge shock for me when I turned an adult. Right. And I thought it's going to be the same thing. You know, you, you turn up for an audition, you get the parts, of course. And it was a rude awakening for me when I spent nine months unemployed, auditioning for anything and everything. And nobody wanted to employ me. And this I was out of drama school? You had... Yes, after drama school, yeah. And had you... Had you also done work by that time in the States or were you pre- predominantly working back home? In, in After London? drama school? Or before even, I guess. Um, no, no, no. It was all in England um, at that stage. And things changed after I did 28 Days Later. Um, with Danny Boyle. And uh, and then after that, then I started to work in the States. So yeah, so not only do you get the, the Danny Boyle experience, who has been on this podcast and who I adore, everybody, I love you know, him. he's the best, he's not only amazing. a great filmmaker, but also just the sweetest, yeah, coolest man. Um, but that film really was revolutionary in many ways. Yeah. It was, I think, the first digital piece of filmmaking, mm-hmm. I think, in mainstream uh, uh, media. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of revitalized this genre, this zombie yeah. genre that we're still living through. Yeah. Um, Give me a sense. Did it feel like something unique at the time? Did you realize the, the specialness of that project at the time or was kind of ignorance bliss? Were you just getting started and you – was it just another gig or another job? Um, I was just happy to be working, you yeah. know, because uh, that was – as I said, I, no one would employ me. I had one job in that time period where I was paid £30 a week and £30 wasn't even enough to cover my um, train fare to and from work. So uh, to finally get um, you know, a role in a film with an incredible director like Danny Boyle, I was just hungry to yeah. be on set and to, and to learn from him as well. And I had no idea that it was going to do as well as it did. Yeah. Um, so it was a huge shock for me. But when I sat down with my family and we watched a private screening of it and I saw it for the first time, I just thought, this is extraordinary because it was, you know, it was all there on the page. But when you see it on screen, it, he just added something yeah. extra that I, I never imagined. It's such a visceral experience. Yeah. You know, like it's literally the na- that, that cliche of the nail biter, right? Exactly. Um, did, it, did it feel like, I mean, how would you describe Danny Boyle's approach in that film or generally, I mean, it, it has a very loose, almost run and gun kind of vibe, but maybe that was based more on that specific project. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that would describe like Steve Jobs, for instance, Mm -hmm. but um, were you kind of spoiled in a sense by Danny? Like what was, what was unique about him, you think, as a filmmaker to work with? Well, I would describe the, um, the experience as kind of guerrilla shooting in the sense that, you know, uh, we weren't allowed to take over certain areas of London, but we did because (laughs) what we discovered is um, what the production discovered was that if you put someone in a high-vis jacket and they look like they have authority and they say stop (laughs) to traffic, they stop. And so that's how we managed to take over, you know, parts of London and film this. But then as soon as any cops turned up or someone got a bit irate, then we had to pack everything away and (laughs) run, you know. So it felt like a very unorthodox way of shooting. And and post that, did you notice an immediate kind of – sense of opportunity to, did, I mean, you did the, for instance, you did the Brett Ratner film after yes. the sunset, you did like yeah. um, a Winterbottom film. Yes. Um, did those kind of come quickly? Was there a sense that like being a lead in a mm-hmm. Danny Boyle film of that stature made a difference in your career? Well, I really hoped it would. I kind of, it came out, it did really well. And I was expecting like the job offers to sure. flood in and it was not like that at all. It was, there was just complete silence. In fact, I remember that I sent out like, 
I don't know, a hundred um, CVs to all the casting directors. And and actually one of the casting directors contacted my agent and said, Naomi's just done 28 Days Later. She really should not be sending out CVs at this stage. <laughs> like, it's a bit weird. Tell her to stop. But I was like, but there's no work. Yeah. And it's, it's really strony, funny how there's a kind of delay between the work you do and then the response because it took a good good year and a half before the impact of twenty I felt the impact of 28 days later and I started to to work again so what was that year and a half like was that almost in a sense more frustrating than, than the nine months of unemployment I mean I, it's no I think the nine months of unemployment was the worst period in my career because ever. you're like I don't know if this is going to happen yeah period. exactly I didn't think it was going to happen and I didn't feel as though I could call myself anything I felt like a non-person because I'd go to you know dinner parties and people would say so what do you do and I'd feel like a fraud I'd, I couldn't say I was an anxious because like I hadn't had a job right. you know now I know nine months is absolutely nothing like you know it's crazy that I was stressing over nine months you know in acting terms that's really nothing at all do you I mean I've talked to many actors of like as uh, with as star-studded a resume as possible who still feel um, perpetually anxious about the next role do you feel security at this point in your career no you don't you know you you never do it's not like kind of training to be a doctor when there's a set path for you and you know that you're going to reach a certain level and then you'll be you know promoted to the next level and you'll always have job security it's not like that with acting. It's all, you're always insecure. Well, and there's so much randomness in every aspect down to you can make a great film mm-hmm. that the distributor exactly. has no money. Exactly. Uh, you can you can make a, a, a Mandela, which mm-hmm. got great reviews that yeah. didn't necessarily – wasn't seen by nearly enough people. Exactly. And I'm sure you have a ton of pride in that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, that can screw with someone's brain. Or you can have an amazing script and, you know, give an amazing performance. And actually, in the editing, it just doesn't come together. Yeah. So it's always just luck. And that's one of the amazing things about being part of Moonlight. You know, when all these magic ingredients come together and it actually connects with people. Yeah. That's extraordinary. So um, was the next big, quote unquote, big thing, would you consider that Pirates? Was that kind of the next kind of step in in your career? After 28 Days Later? Yeah. it was white, white teeth. teeth. Yes, the Zeta Smith. Th- that was white yeah. teeth, um, and then it was after the sunset. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So give me a sense because I think a, a lot of people, uh, you know, appreciated what you were able to do in in two of the pirates films. In that, like, mm-hmm. those are such giant films, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's easy for someone to get lost in mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. in in every respect, whether it's like, um, you know. I, enjoying yourself and making it a satisfying, you mm-hmm. know, uh, process for yourself or mm-hmm. just getting lost in kind of the machinations of, of, a, of a franchise. Mm-hmm. How was that a learning curve in, 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 in operating in that world? Did that feel like um, natural to you to kind of take on that role and be in that kind of scale film? Um, I think I just felt very privileged that I hadn't started off in that kind of world. Right. Because I think you're right. It's very easy to feel like a very small cog, part of a gigantic wheel that's really unwieldy and that you feel like you don't have any influence and your voice isn't heard in that context at all. So I think it was great for me to start off doing indie films and, you know, British TV as well, um, where you're made to feel like it's a much more collaborative experience. Um, and in terms of pirates, I just think that, you know, it was 
it was an incredible experience because it's also like Moonlight. I was only on that movie for just a few days. Right. So I got to do all of my work beforehand and then come on and just play. And Tia Delma is still the most fun part I've ever played. What, do you, uh, what does Johnny Depp smell like when you think back to Johnny? What Johnny Depp? Smell yeah, like what's, what's his odor? Is, 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 is it is it a, very I feel, earthy? I was going to say I feel like there are a lot of yes. different. No elements. one's ever asked me that. By the I'm way, trying, that is an amazing question. I'm trying to break new ground. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> Wait, she's walking out of the room. No, come back, come back. <laughs> uh, one film that I I won't ask what any of your other co-stars smell like. Don't worry, <laughs> but I am curious about Miami Vice because I mm-hmm. uh, I actually I, I really love that film and um I love Michael Mann and mm. I, another guest he's been on the podcast Aww, quite a guy. I Quite an intense yeah, man. He He's the he only is. person to ever come here with a um, a binder of about okay. his own work. No way. Like he had. Are you like, he was like fact checking himself and me no as we were talking. Way. It was like quintessential that Michael Mann. I felt kind brilliant. of privileged. Like I was like, oh yeah, my God. I, I'm, I'm in Michael Mann land. <laughs> you know, Michael, working with Michael Mann was this amazing experience because. Um, it was basically like if you said to Michael Mann, I need to um, learn the bongos and I need to go to Outer <laughs> Mongolia to do it. He would say, here's a budget. Yeah. Here's the private plane. Go. <laughs> you should have done like, that whatever. in I know. I really should have, right? <laughs> well, he had me training with undercover agents right. in New York and going on drug raids with them. So I, I think I did pretty well yeah, out of the yeah, whole you've situation. Yeah, a unique life experience. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it was amazing because he would just give you whatever you needed to create your character. He respects actors and their process so much. He's like, whatever you need, you can have it. How many days did you spend bound to a, a chair um, <laughs> <laughs> for that film? I think it was about three days. That's... But never mind that. I didn't mind that so much because okay. that was good. I got to just sort of have a sleep <laughs> every now and then. But uh, that movie was shot completely at night. So right. I don't know. I was disorienting a little yes, bit. Yes, that was that was a really tough shoot. It sounds and it like was, it was like yeah. so unnecessary as well because it was like a lot of the time we yeah it was indoors. <laughs> we just blacked out the window, but because Michael likes realism, we had to do it at night. Amazing. And I will tell you, I'm a morning person. I hate nighttime. When it gets to like nine thirty, I'm like, that's it. It's time for bed. So I was just. <laughs> I really struggled on that movie. Have to be honest. Yeah, that's a bunch of. I mean, you also work with someone like David Ayer, who's another. Like he's a uh, for Street Kings. No, was he not? Yes, 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 yes. yes. David Ayer, another another kind of like a tough filmmaker, kind of like a hard nosed kind of guy. Um, And then I think of like someone like. Well, moving to Bond, like Sam Mendes, mm-hmm. who is like theater, you know, theater yes. train comes out of that element. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so lucky actually to do Bond with Sam because yeah. um, because of his indie background yeah. and, you know, theater background as well. He likes a really small set. Um, so he doesn't like a lot of people around at all. So it made me feel like I was making an indie movie. It right. didn't feel like this huge James Bond thing because I was absolutely terrified by the time I got on set because everyone kept on saying, oh, you're doing Bond. <laughs> it's Bond. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just another movie like any other movie. Right. No, no, no. It's Bond. And so it was, it, was it just not a big thing in, uh, where, where you grew up and your family or whatever? Bond was just, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 uh, it's part no, of it's, our... if you're British. I, I mean, it's say, like, it has you to know, be. I mean, and around the world, as I've discussed, since traveling around with Bond, everybody loves and adores this franchise. So I knew it was big. It's just I didn't want people to keep on telling me Got that. It. I was like, let's, <laughs> let's downplay this, guys. Let's just do the work, guys. <laughs> so and when you when you met with him, was it like how much did they tell you about the role? Like in terms of it being Money Penny or not, or a different take on Money Penny? So or- I um, auditioned about three times, and they didn't tell me anything about it being um, Money Penny. 
And I thought, this doesn't make sense. Like, guys, you know, I'm too old. Like, because, you know, the, the Bond girls had historically been like in their 20s. So right. I was like, listen, guys, I'm too old. I do not have the assets to play a Bond girl. What are you thinking? Like, this is all wrong. So I just thought, you know, it's just part of their process because I know that they go all around the world. They audition like thousands of people. So I just thought, this is part of their process. Sure. This is just fun. Let me just do this for experience. And then um, it got to like my final audition and Sam said, it's actually down between you and two others. And so I was like, really? You're serious about me being a Bond girl? And he was like, well, actually, the role is for Miss Moneypenny. And then I thought, yes, that makes a lot more <laughs> sense. Now I get it. And, and those have been creatively satisfying, thanks to Sam's work and working with someone like Daniel, despite mm -hmm. working like on that scale. Again, like Pirates, it's had its it, own it rewards was, for it's you. It's hugely satisfying because, you know, at the helm of everything is a, a brother and sister team, Barbara and Michael. Sure. And um, It is kind of like they, a family-run company. It's 100% a family-run thing. And also because there's so much love behind um, the, that whole franchise because it's, you know, they're, they're uh, living their way of connecting with their father who died, you know, sure. and, and keeping his legacy alive. So there's so much passion and they like to keep it like a family. So everybody who's worked on it has worked for it for decades. Like my driver had been driving on the Bond movies for the last 22 years. Right. The makeup person the is doing, yeah. was doing it for Roger Moore. Well, actually, like, the stunt performer, his brother was the stunt performer before him. And before him, amazing. it was the, his dad. So, yeah, it's yeah. Um, it's a really special feeling. Has it, is it funny to you that you've ended up in kind of like some of these action-oriented things? Is it's that really in keeping weird. with your – that's not so your kind of thing? not in keeping with me <laughs> – at all. If anybody who knows me, they know I like a comfy chair and a good book. <laughs> so it's very not like me. Do you? And what is your attitude about kind of like quote unquote franchise movies, etc.? Because mm -hmm. you, you've you've done two of the biggest ones out there. Yeah. Do you feel like in a way you've checked that box? Like you you have that kind of on, from a business standpoint, if we're looking at it in that kind of cynical way, you have mm -hmm. that kind of recognition and association. See, I never ever look at anything in that in a kind of business way. I yeah. think it drives my agents bananas um particularly now because <laughs> they are like you know come wouldn't you like to do this name and wouldn't you like to do that and lovely offers are coming my way but um i just look for things that i connect with emotionally yeah um and that move me you know and i think i can go on an interesting journey and i can learn something from it i i'm not about you know making strategic choices for my career because i don't think you can make them as we've said it's you know it's a lottery in terms yeah. of what's going to do well in this business well and so. the lesson learned out of the film we're here to talk about today is something like moonlight mm -hmm. which um again it takes all the elements coming together in yep. the right way for this to be seen by i think the audience that will end up seeing it it's, yeah. i think this is going to get you know a lot of attention and mm. it's getting yes it's getting awards attention justifiably mm. so mm. and on paper maybe it could have just come and gone it could have been a you know vod whatever it yeah. was yeah and this arguably will have more of an impact on your career even than than pirates for instance who knows yeah who knows who knows so um looking ahead for a second um so you shot something for Jungle Book, yes? You shot yes. the – which yes. I'm very excited about. So I am so excited about so it. So was this a mocap thing, like a motion capture yes, thing? Yes, it was, And yeah. this is Andy Serkis. It's Andy Serkis. with um, fantastic. An incredible cast of Benedict Cumberbatch and Kate Blanchett right. and Christian Bale and, yeah, these amazing <laughs> actors. So, yeah. So – and what was the – was that your first kind of um, – like, so is that like literally the, the suit with the balls attached to you, that no, kind of a thing? No, you don't even have a suit. It's incredible. All they need is like you, you wear a, a helmet. Yeah. And it has 
a light and then you have dots on your face and that's it. And then you, you know, you're on your hands and knees howling, pretending to be a wolf. It is brilliant. And you don't need any lighting setups. You don't need any scenery. It's all in your imagination. So it's like being a kid again. I was going to say, it's like, playing. it's like some kind of like acting school exercise. Exactly. Like, yeah. Are we actually doing, and it's going to end up looking like a fantastic. It is going to be amazing. I mean, movie. I haven't seen it, but I'm, I know it's going to be amazing. And who do you get to howl at the moon with? Who are you getting to? Well, I'm around? Nisha, the mother wolf, oh. playing the mother again, but a nurturing <laughs> mother this time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we're also going to see you uh, this holiday season in Collateral Beauty. That's right. An amazing yeah. ensemble in that one. Yeah, incredible. Mr. Will, Smith. Will Smith, Kate Winslet, uh, Helen Mirren, Kira Knightley, Edward Norton. Not bad it's company. It's an insane cast. And you shot yeah. that here in New York? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, and is, is London still home or do you go back No, London forward? is still home. Yeah. yeah. London will always be home. I live on the same street as my family. So, oh my <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm not, I'm not leaving anytime soon. Okay. Well, you're always welcome in New York. Thank you. New York you. is a sister city, I always say, to Thank London. You. I grew up here in New York and I feel like London London and New York have a lot of... Uh, no, really? No, I think they're very they're dissimilar. Oh, I would say, yeah. New York is a 24-hour city. London is much more sedate than that. You know, it's okay. like, maybe, come, maybe come you're 12 part of town. o'clock. Yeah, it's, that's true, actually. <laughs> I'm in the Naomi's suburbs. boring part of town. <laughs> in <laughs> with, bed by 9.30. no 30. drinking or smoking or anything. <laughs> no living. Just surviving on air. <laughs> they're just all just sitting on couches reading. <laughs> boring. <now. laughs> Thank you. Um, oh my gosh, I'm going to come back here again to get insulted. No. <laughs> it's all out of love. Um, perhaps if I did, uh, you know, actually, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, so I can't, I'm not one to talk. Ah, <laughs> there you go. You're part of my camp. There you go. There you go. I'm, back, I'm back in the good company. Do you know what you're off to shoot next or do next? After no, no, I, I don't know. Um, I've just got a lot, a lot of promotion ahead yeah. of me. So, you know, I'm promoting, obviously, Moonlight. And uh, next will be Collateral Beauty. So, Very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, as I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan of both your work and, and this film. And I hope people check it out. They should check it out. As I said, it's it's a very specific story, but mm. a very universal one that I think audiences are already connecting with and will continue to connect with throughout this award season and holiday season, et cetera. <laughs> um, I hope to see you on some silly red carpet soon. Oh, talking about it so again. Much. Thanks for coming in, Naomi. Thank you for having me. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs> this episode of Happy, Sad, Confused was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. one of the best savings rates in America. Banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. 
cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.